0: Welcome to the Labor History Podcast, produced by Ian Hudson. My name is Avery Ware. I'm a social worker in the County of San Diego. The podcast came about because I was asked by my union local to organize a labor history class. Once the class got going, we decided to make a podcast as well. Tonight's is a discussion of the history of the United Farm Workers. In March of 1962, Cesar Chavez, son of a migrant farmworking family from Yuma, Arizona, and executive director of the civil rights group, the CSO, or Community Service Organization, proposed that the CSO launch a pilot project to form a farmworkers union. CSO founder Saul Alinsky responded that organizing farmworkers was impossible, quote, like fighting on a constantly disintegrating bed of sand. The CSO rejected Chavez's proposal. He resigned, and with the fellow CSO organizer Dolores Huerta, they set out to build a union on their own. Huerta became legendary as a brilliantly tough negotiator, but she was one of the many CSO Latinas who learned negotiations and other key behind-the-scenes skills while male leaders like Chavez acted as public faces. Over the next 20 years, Alinsky would be proven wrong. Now, it is true that rural and farm labor has been one of the weak spots in the U.S. labor movement, as in much of the world. Part of this stems from farm labor being seasonal and migratory. It's hard to organize workers who don't have the same employer very long. Farm labor is also very spread out and stuck in the boondocks where local land and business owners are often free to collude with sheriffs and vigilantes to violently crush resistance away from public scrutiny. Yet farm workers have overcome all of these obstacles many times. The kicker is that Western farms are on land stolen from native peoples and Mexico and owned by descendants of a settler population influenced by a white supremacy that justifies their property titles. So, as in previous sessions, we saw that one legacy of slavery is a low-wage, anti-union South that has left the whole U.S. working class behind other rich countries in unionization, social benefits, and life expectancy, U.S. is the richest country in the world, but is number 27 in life expectancy? Well, a similar effect on farm labor can be traced to land theft and the racist ideas of settler colonialism. Contrary to myth, harvesting fruits and vegetables is not unskilled, but as former farm worker Felix Cora told me, highly skilled labor but it's paid at unskilled rates. Farm workers were left out of the 1935 Wagner Act, allowing National Labor Relations Board union elections, so that the law could pass without antagonizing landowners in the South and Southwest. As far back as 1903, Mexican and Japanese farm workers self-organized a union. The racism of the Jim Crow-era AFL caused them to neglect and sabotage this early effort. In the 19-teens, the Industrial Workers of the World reached their highest membership at around 150,000. And their largest and most successful union was, in fact, the AWO, the Agricultural Workers Organization. Farm workers would recruit their fellows as they rode boxcars across the Midwest, singing union songs by Joe Hill around campfires at night. The IWW embraced Mexican and other non-white workers, and they gave an anti-racist education to all members. But farm organizer Frank Little was lynched in 1915 in Idaho, and the IWW declined under mass arrests during World War I. In the early Depression years, before the rolling strike victories across industrial factories from 1934 onward. Before that, some of the biggest strikes were in California, as Communist Party organizers built the Cannery and Agricultural Workers Industrial Union. These Depression-era strikes shaped Cesar Chavez, who once said he grew up in, quote, the strikingest family in the valley. The same years, Socialists and Communists organized thousands of sharecroppers, a different type of farm worker, across the Deep South into two organizations, the Sharecroppers Union and the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. The latter, portrayed in Denzel Washington's excellent film, The Great Debaters, included equal numbers of blacks and whites while it was illegal to do that in the Jim Crow South. All of this history meant that Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez were not so much setting out in 1962 to organize unorganized farm workers. Instead, they knit together already informally organized local groups into an overarching union. Using house meeting tactics learned in the CSO, They patiently signed up members, starting with already existing local strike leaders, who had never given up the strike weapon they had used at least since the 30s. By 1965, they had 1,200 National Farm Workers Association members, and 200 of them were dues payers. But they weren't the only unionizers. Filipino socialists Larry Itleong and Philip Veracruz had built an Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, mostly from Filipino farm workers. On September 8, 1965, it was these workers who went on strike demanding an end to sub-minimum wage pay in the grape fields. One week later, on Mexican Independence Day, Huerta and Chavez's NFWA met at our Lady of Guadalupe Church in Delano, California. Huerta and Chavez were opposed to joining the strike, but they were overpowered by chants of huelga, and so the union agreed to join the strike, which as a result now had 2,000 workers out. Many strikers were arrested and injured by sheriffs and growers while picketing. On March 17th of 1966, Chavez led a 300-mile pilgrimage from Delano to Sacramento, bringing attention. In August, the two unions merged to form the National Farm Workers Organizing Committee, and that later became the UFW of the AFL-CIO in 1972. But as the strike continued, two workers and a student were sent to Oakland to ask that the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehousemen's Union, not to unload grapes for export on the docks. The ILWU, which was one of 11 unions expelled from the CIO in 1948 for communist influence, had a long history of civil rights advocacy of both African American and Mexican members. So they agreed to support the strike and that caused ten thousand tons of grapes to spoil on the docks in the very first few weeks. As a result, the union launched not just a strike but an international campaign to boycott grapes. Grocery store unions were also crucial to the success of this boycott. In nineteen sixty six unions and churches in Seattle and Portland endorsed the boycott. A boycott committee was formed in Vancouver. In 1968, as hundreds of Unionists and supporters faced arrest, holding the picket line strong, mayors of New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Detroit pledged support. In 1969, black freedom struggle organizations pressured stores in Atlanta, Miami, New Orleans, and Nashville to boycott. Anti-war protesters pressured the Department of Defense to stop intentionally purchasing boycotted grapes. As the Chicano movement grew out of the 1968 L.A. student strike, a new organization called MECHA was formed on campuses across the state, across the region, and they provided boycott activists activists on campuses across the Southwest. Finally, in July of 1970, five years after the start of the grape strike, the table grape growers' last holdouts threw in in the towel, giving 10,000 workers their first contract. The union continued to grow through the 1970s, between 65 and 75. There were over 1,000 farmworker strike and boycott actions. When the grape contracts expired in 1973, the growers tried to go around the UFW and sign up with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which was the only national union to endorse California Republican and close friend of California agribusiness, Richard Nixon, for president. The Teamsters viewed Mexican and Filipino farm workers as needing education before they deserved better pay and benefits. They had mafia thugs on their payrolls, and these beat UFW farm workers striking or promoting lettuce and grape boycotts. Amid unrest across California farms in 1975, the state passed its own law, the ALRA, Agricultural Labor Relations Act, granting farm workers the right to union elections denied them under the Wagner Act. The UFW won most of these elections, and in 1977 the Teamsters signed an agreement to withdraw, to stop competing with the UFW. With up to 80,000 members and a California-wide strike in 1979, the UFW had become the most successful farm union in U.S. labor history. There's much to learn from all these successes. There were also serious failures, and these hurt the future of the United Farm Workers Union, today a much smaller organization. Unity between Mexican and Filipino farm workers was undermined by some of Chavez's moves which tended to identify the Union with Mexican workers solely and Chavez at one point visited Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos on a friendly visit, enraging the left-leaning Filipino farm working leaders. One of the more bizarre and well-noted flaws of Chavez's leadership style was that through Mary Tyler Moore show co-star Valerie Harper, and this gets interesting, Chavez, like an important social movement leader then or now, had the opportunity to meet celebrities, to solicit funds and publicity that way. It's all to the good. Except that Valerie Harper was a friend of this guy named Chuck Diederich, founder of the organization Synanon, which was an alcohol and drug recovery organization, but it had cultish characteristics, and it used these really harsh and counter-group tactics to break people down before they could build them back up. Well, Chavez was sold on the idea, and he started using it in the Union. This alienated tons of people among the many volunteers and staff members who were inspired to support the Union over the years, though not really among actual farm workers. Even more serious was the lack of democracy in the United Farm Workers which in fact to this day doesn't have union locals. It's just the United Farm Workers Union. And this lack of democracy translated, as is so often the case when the employed staff and official leadership of unions have the final say, in a resistance to risking the funds of the Union on strikes and struggle. Yet the Union was built on pre-existing networks of farm worker militants who had long traditions of striking and who insisted on doing so, many of them especially in the Salinas Valley in the early 80s, then facing expulsion from Chavez. This was a devastating blow. Yet, the most important reasons for the decline of the United Farm Workers had to do with the same reasons that the overall labor movement has declined starting at the same exact time and this played out in California during the Reagan clone governorship of George Duke Magin who stopped funding the ULRA and made it impossible to have union elections happen. Today The United Farm Workers is still around, with a few thousand members under contract, but it's no longer the largest farm workers' union. The Farm Labor Organizing Committee in the Midwest is perhaps the largest. The Coalition of Amokali Workers in southern Florida, which did a successful and inspiring boycott of Taco Bell a few years ago, leading to the doubling of many of their members' wages. There are farm organizers in the Dairies of Vermont, among apple harvesters in the Pacific Northwest. So farm worker struggle continues. And the positive legacy of the United Farm Workers continues as well. It's far from the only example of social justice unionism, of the unity of anti-racist and pro-labor struggles and the way that the two reinforce and build each other and in the way that it builds support for a worker's cause beyond the ranks of any one union. It's far from the only and far from even the best example of this, but it is certainly the most well-known. And as these tactics become more and more discussed and in some cases deployed in today's labor movement, the influence on that of the United Farm Workers looms large.